Du lytter til episode 12 av Inkubatoren, podcasten for gründere. Hi guys, it's Robert Shaw here and welcome back to The Incubator. Before I started this podcast, I initially said to myself I was only going to do interviews in Norwegian, uh, but this one is in English, as you can hear. And that's because this week I brought with me a guy from Silicon Valley, and he speaks many languages, but sadly Norwegian isn't one of them. But this guy is really awesome, and I wanted him on the podcast, so I thought I should make an exception for this time. But let me know what you think, guys. Should I do more interviews in English or should we constrain it to Norwegian? Uh, just go to the Facebook group at incubatoren.no-facebook and uh, leave in the comments there if you want more interviews like this or if we yeah, should keep it to Norwegian. In advance, I just have to say sorry for the sound quality, guys. Uh, he was in India this time, so uh, and because of bad internet connectivity, we had to switch back and forth from his cell phone and to Skype and stuff. So, um, yeah, normally we have much better sound quality. This time it wasn't that good, uh, so sorry about that. Uh, and if you, you're having problems hearing what he's saying, just put on some headphones and you should be able to hear most of it. But anyways, that's enough of my rambling. Let's introduce today's guest. This guy is a machine of a man. He's an educated aerospace engineer. He's a pilot. He's a pilot instructor. He's a founder of several companies. He sold one of them. He's an advisor of startups. And today he works in Yahoo. There he runs Yahoo Autos, which is the world's most visited car site. This guy is awesome, guys. So give it up to Ritesh Lal. Ritesh, welcome to the incubator. I'm I'm really honored, Robert. So it's a <laughs> pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, yeah, I had to ask you. Tell me about you, Ritesh. You you were born in India, and your father was was working in the oil business, so he moved around a lot. That's correct. Yeah, I was born in India a long, long, long time ago, back when the original Star Wars movies came out. <laughs> so that was it was literally long time ago. And uh, I moved around India a lot because my dad worked for the uh, National Oil Company. So he was, you know, he would get transferred anywhere that oil was found. So we were moving on average every five years. So I've, I've lived all over the country. Wow. Well, yeah, you've you, basically you've moved you've moved all your life, uh, from what I can see. <laughs> so, how was that actually to grow up, kind of moving around all the time? It had it had its good and bad parts, right? Um, the good part is that uh, you know my family was very modern. We had very open, very modern views. I was exposed to lots of different cultures because India unlike Norway, is not one single homogeneous, um, you know, culture. Yeah. It, it was formed by joining together several small provinces for, with having different languages, different religions. So it gave me a very modern, very open outlook, right? Because everywhere I had to learn to make new friends, understand and appreciate different cultures. And in general, I found that people who had traveled more and lived in different places more, tended to be more adaptable and were more open and much more fun for me to hang out with. So that was the good part, right? Being adaptable, modern, open-minded. The bad part was that I was always envious of people who have their roots, you know, like who who were born and brought up in the same place and who know the streets, the shops, the culture, the all the local institutes very, very well and they've had the same friends for 10 years, 15 years, people with whom they had grown up in the school. So I missed that a little bit, that, you know, this not having this very deep roots. And that bothered me for a long time, even when I grew up. So, yeah, good and bad parts. Yeah. But now you're you're actually in the south in India. Is that kind of where you see your roots now because you're visiting your family? Or how do you feel about that? <laughs> Not really. I don't consider India as my strongest roots at all, because even though I was born and brought up in India, the longest I have stayed in one place is in California. I've been living in California for 
I want to say, what, 13 years now. So that's the one place where I really live longest time. And I see myself like, you know, buying a house, settling down there and and living the rest of my life there as well. Right. So I, I, I strongly identify as if if somebody asks me, where are you from? I say California usually because that's the place where I've lived longest, one single place. Um, and technically, like I have French citizenship. I'm about to get a U.S. citizenship. So Chennai, I don't know. I, I, I just come here because my parents happen to retire here. So I come here once in a while to visit them. And so you were in business school and you met your, well, it's your former wife, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, and then you moved to France. That is right. So I was, um, I was at a business school here in India. We had this exchange program with this French business school called ISSEC. It's one of their top schools. And I was at India's top business school. So that's how I ended up meeting her. Uh, after my B school, I married her and I ended up settling in France uh, just to be with her. Uh, so, yeah, um, we were married for a long time, but uh, for about 15 years. But uh, we are divorced now. So that's how that's how my French connection originates because of this French girl. <laughs> yeah. So do you actually speak French? I do. I do. So I'm, I'm a French citizen. I lived there for four years, um, and I learned I learned French there. I had to to work there, right? Yeah. So so I am uh, I'm I'm pretty conversational. I want to say I have conversational fluency. I'm not very good at writing in French, but speaking, I'm pretty good. Yeah. So uh, actually, you you um, you studied uh, uh, aerospace or uh, engineering. Uh, was that back in India or was that in France? Uh, it was it was back in India. That was in India. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, my bachelor's degree in engineering. I've always been like you know super crazy about airplanes, rockets. Um, yeah, so I studied that. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, kind of the the Star Wars thing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So in um, in France, you started um, uh, a company named. Uh, am I saying it right, Ione, or how do you pronounce it? That's correct, Ione. Ion. Uh, yes, yes. So it was. Uh, I I started it in France, and the reason for that name is that we wanted to get directory listings where we were in the in the uh, at the top of the directory listings so i wanted a name that started with a and that's that's how we happened to call it. <laughs> well it works pretty good <laughs> i know right <laughs> so uh, what was it about um how did it start uh so yeah this one had a pretty uh fascinating story behind it so I was working for an American software company, a big data company called MicroStrategy. And what I was seeing was um, the French government passed a law during those days saying that all the public agencies needed to make their internal information available to the public via internet. Internet was the new thing in those days, right? Yeah. So, so basically, the French government passed the laws and all of these agencies, they had no clue how to do it. So they're like, oh, how do we build a website? How do we publish documents? And how do we comply with the law? Uh, so there was that going on. And what I was seeing was that uh, France is, is about 60% public sector economy. Only 40% is private sector. Very opposite of US, right? So I knew there was a huge market. All of these public sector agencies needed to do that. And because there was no package software available in those days, this was the early days of internet, they were asking all these service companies to custom make the software for them. So what was happening was there's huge demand but very poor quality of product because everybody was was creating the wheel from scratch. They were custom making the same software. So a long time to implement the software, quality issues, and very expensive. So I was like, you know, man, I'm working for this American software company. I know how to productize, you know, a service. I know how to, you know, build once, make it extremely high quality, reduce cost, make it like, you know, uh, Im implementable in a day instead of taking several days um, and you know low cost high quality and quick time to implement so why don't I, we try this 
And that's how the idea originated. So Ion was a web content management software, which allows people to publish information on the on their on their website or even internally on their intranets. So that's what we did. Okay, but mm-hmm. but uh, did you have any developing skills, or or how, how did you go about? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. I I am someone who would who who's always been a tinkerer meaning i can mess around with stuff i can create front end and just you know create prototypes yeah. but i don't have the level so i'm a self-taught person right i'm not formally trained as a software guy as you noted previously i'm an aerospace engineer by training so um, but i always you know i would download stuff from the net i would do tutorials i would learn enough to prototype and and play with stuff but i am not a professional um uh, level software developer so what I did, I, and, but I can speak the language. I understand the intricacies of technology very, very well. Yeah. Uh, I understand the business aspects very well. I, can, I understand the user requirements and, and design um, user experience really well. Uh, so what I did was, um, and in France, um, there was a huge shortage of software developers, right? So um, the way I, hi- I hired software developers and the way I did was there were two things which worked in my favor. Um, actually, three things. So first is that even though I'm a business, I understand technology very well and I can, and I can play with it. I, can, I, I understand it well enough that I can create prototypes. If you don't know technology at all, it is, I th- in my opinion, it's hard to be a software entrepreneur. You don't have to be a professional level developer, but you need to be able to create, you know, you need to be comfortable with WordPress, some basic databases, some some simple stuff that you can learn in a week at least, right? Um, So that's one thing that I knew enough, okay? Um, The second thing that played in my favor was um, was very resourceful in the sense that, you know, if you try and try to hire a software developer in, in a European country like France, uh, being a small startup, you will not find good quality developers because in Europe, the culture is not of risk taking. All the good software developers want to work for IBM. Yeah. You know, they want a large company, they want their pensions and, you know, all that stuff. So what I did instead was I went to the local university and there were students from Ukraine who were of exceptional quality who were about to be sent back to Ukraine after finishing their degree, unless they find unless they find a job. So I offered them a work visa, and in return for them willing to stay at my tiny small startup and work for me. So so that was the second thing that played in my favor. That if I had tried to hire developers the traditional way, I would not have succeeded because I'm competing against IBM and I can't pay that much. So you have to be a little bit creative and, you know, be flexible in um, how you're hiring software developers. Um, So that was the second thing. Like the first thing, know a little bit about tech. Second thing, be resourceful because as a startup, you can't behave like a big company. And then um, I think the third thing that worked very well for me in being able to form a team very quickly together was... um, French government was offering lots of subsidies to companies who were doing technology innovation. So we competed uh, for for the French awards, and we uh, I, I succeeded because I showed to them how I am trying to build a technically innovative software product, which is going to help the public agencies perform better, deliver better service to the to the public. Yeah. So I won that award, and they they basically uh, subsidize the salaries of my employees. So they paid 50% of my employee salary for the first year. And they also gave us like, you know, a, a, like a really big amount for us to get started, subsidized offices, subsidized employees, and like a cash grant. So those three things work for me. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's great. 50%. That That's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> that's huge, right? <laughs> So, yeah, after, after, how, how long time did it go before you actually actually sold this company? I sold this company two years after starting it. So it was uh, created in 2001, and then I sold it in 2003. Yeah. 
So how did that actually start? Did you want to sell it or or did it just come with an offer and you couldn't refuse or Yeah, so um it's it's both actually. So first of all, I mean I have to sell it, right? I mean I, I wanted to sell it because I wanted to go to the United States. By that time I had been here in France for 4 years. Uh, you know, to be with my wife and, you know, being in Paris while you're in your 20s, it's not bad, right? But four years was enough. Uh, my long-term goal, goal was always to go and live in, in America. And I'm like, okay, so, um, and and that time I was already applying to graduate schools uh, in the United States. And I had gotten admission, so I knew this was a time to sell. Um, the second thing, an offer which I could not refuse that always happens over long term. It's never an overnight thing. So I had made sure that my product was exceptionally well. Um, you know, it was superior to everything competing out there by a factor of 10. Its cost was like one tenth that of competing products. Its ease of usage, its ease of implementing was like maybe like one twentieth as much as the next competing product. So my product was you know, was basically the thing which was doing the um, the negotiation for me. If you have something excellent to sell, right, the negotiations become really easy, right? Yeah. So um, uh, that and then, you know, uh, so yeah, um, there was this company called Media Gérance. It's a publicly quoted company on Euronext Stock Exchange. Uh, we told them that, hey, look, we have already sold projects for the next one year. So if you buy us now, you have guaranteed revenue for the next one year from this very prestigious French public agencies. So, you know, um, I set it up in a way that they were that they made us a very nice offer. And although it was the only single buyer that we had, I did not have like multiple buyers or anything, just one. Because our product was very good, because I had made sure that it was a huge win-win for them, they had guaranteed revenues for the next year. Um, I was able to sell the company and, and move to US. Yeah. So you you told me about something in um, in Mexico that I found very interesting, and because you you're not allowed to say the the amount, right? Yes. But you told about how you negotiated extra cash afterwards uh, due to training. Correct. <laughs> yeah, and I found yeah. that very interesting, but because it was a huge sum just for training. Uh, or a huge amount. Uh, could you tell about that? Sorry, guys. Hey, the connection cut us off. And that actually happens many times throughout the whole interview. Uh, but I've tried to hide it as much as possible uh, so you don't get disturbed by it. Uh, but anyways, back to the interview. I, I, I apologize as well, uh, Robert. It's, uh, it's just, you know, the internet connection here sucks. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Not your fault. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, the the training part. So uh, basically, I think your very left off was you were asking how I got the buyer of my company to pay for my education in US. Correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So the way this happened was that we had, you know, we agreed on a uh, on a purchase price, and and I basically kind of was, you know, it just uh, it, I got this idea. You know, if I ask a part of the price to be paid in the form of the company paying it as my training expenses for my for my U.S. tuition fees, uh, we would both end up saving a lot of taxes. And I realized this only afterwards because we agreed on this price. He's happy. I'm happy. And then we then I realized, oh my God, I have to pay so much taxes on this amount. I'm like. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how can I get rid of this, this taxes, right? And so that's how this idea originated that, you know, I went and told him, look, why don't you pay part of, of the purchase price as my training fee? So it's, from accounting perspective, it's seen as a cost to the company. So they end up paying no tax on it. And since I am not getting the money, you know, my university is getting the money, right? I'm not paying taxes on it, obviously, right? <laughs> so... So that's how um, I proposed it to them. It was, again, a win-win, right? So, um, you know, they ended up saving money. Uh, I got more money. Uh, they ended up paying for part of my U.S. tuition fees. So, um, yeah, that's how it ended up happening. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's great for bo both parties. Yep, yep. And that, I mean, that was, you know, huge lesson for me in, in terms that, you know, when people think of negotiating, like, you know, getting great deals, uh, most of the negotiating books or coaches will often try to tell you it's about winning over the other person, right? It's a competition that you get more than the other party. Yeah. And, and, and that's just not the case. I mean, you know, people ask me, how did you sell that company? How did you negotiate? And I said, the 90% of the negotiation was, was have something that the other party wants. Make something amazing, great, wonderful that the other party wants. That's 90% of the negotiation. And the rest is just, you know, trying to work out the actual terms of the deal in a way that win-win for everybody. Yeah. So, And you also mentioned something back in uh, in Mexico that you know when people can negotiate, it's not all about money. Um, you can negotiate for office space because they already already have offices. You can negotiate for you know uh, to to be able to use a car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there, there's other ways as well. Absolutely, and and so many people lose sight of that. It's. Uh... I mean, you, you gave a great example there about negotiating use of office space. Um, I, had a, I had a friend uh, who used something really creative. He just said that, keep me officially employed uh, for two years so that I can take some time off and do things for myself. I don't, uh, you know, when I come back to the workforce, I want to be able to say that I have this title at this company. And so just give me that with a pay of zero dollars. That's it. That's all I want, you know. So, you know, you can negotiate, you know, if you get creative, you can negotiate a lot of things. Um, I have, uh, I, I know of people who have negotiated, like there's this company which has um, their vacation suite in Hawaii, which all of their company employees can use. So when another friend sold his company to this big company, which has vacation uh, suites in Hawaii, Uh, he negotiated for that. That okay, you can buy my company for this much. Can you also let me use your vacation property in Hawaii for the yeah. next two years, like once every two years, something like that? So he got that as well. And no, and you know, the buying party does not mind at all because it's zero cost to them. You know. Yeah. Well, awesome. So after that, did he go straight to straight to the U.S. for what did you do over there? What did you want to uh, to study? Yeah, so I after that I immediately went to states. Uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, I was there for two years, and I studied technology policy. What, what is that? Yeah, so tech policy—they uh, like to call it as the MBA for public sector. Uh, so it's basically about how governments and public sector organizations make decisions. Because I already had an MBA, and MBA the primary focus is how to make more money. Right. Yeah. That's that's your primary goal. And in the in the tech policy, what we study is how do we maximize the good of the public? So I um, I wanted to study that and I wanted to focus on how do we make policies about technology? Because U.S. has like, you know, lots of technology related issues like, uh, you know, broadband is not available everywhere. The costs are too high. Uh, most of the places, uh, you know, if you go to the middle America, not New York, not San Francisco, the speeds are very low uh, and uh, and some places don't have broadband at all. Or uh, you have to end up paying something like $200 a month to get broadband. Um, so, you know, uh, in, how do we make policies so that we get, you know, fiber, optic, gigabit speed, uh, internet all over the nation? How do we make sure that all public schools have high-speed internet connectivity, policies regarding mobile internet, etc.? I wanted to study that. So that's that's what tech policy is. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so wh when did you actually, um, well, in 2007, you started um, um, the company Marketing Interactive Group? That's correct. So, um, so that was uh, that was that was my second startup and my first one in United States. Independent publishing was taking off, just you know, beginning to take off in those days. Nowadays, you have lots of like in up until those days, if you wanted to publish a book, 
your only route was going through the mainstream publishers, right? Big publishers. And now, as you know, independent publishing has become very popular. People just write their books, you know, publish it on Amazon. They don't go through like, you know, big publishers and so on, right? Uh, Tim Ferriss has done that. James Altucher has done that. Lots of people are doing it. In those days, in 2007, independent publishing was just getting started. uh, And lots of writers had great ideas about, you know, uh, which they wanted to share. But... Uh, did not know how to market their books, how to distribute their books and get them into the hands of their readers. So that's the service that my company was providing. So we would go out and, you know, um, find uh, good authors, authors who had great ideas to be shared with the world. And then we would help them get their audience and sell their um, uh, books in seven English-speaking markets uh, across the world. Okay. So, but in a sense, isn't isn't that a publisher role then just in a probably minor scale or what's what's the difference between your company and uh, and and one of the bigger uh, publishers so the biggest difference uh, is that we focus purely on distribution on getting the authors connected with their markets that's okay. it right okay the the traditional publishers places a lots of restrictions on the author like what should be the title of the book? How many pages should it be? And they will edit the book for you and they'll say, oh, this this tone of the book, this language, it's too aggressive. Market may not like it. Why don't you rewrite this? So they place a lot of constraints on the creativity of the writers and the, and the product itself. Um, the difference with me was I would say, guys, it's your book. If you have full freedom. You write what you want to write. You teach what you want to teach to your audience. I will not interfere in that. I will only help you get your distribution. That's it. That was the big difference. Yeah. Um, and you and you told me um, about this company earlier. You, it went all right, but you, it never did as well as you wanted it to. That's absolutely correct. And so basically, when I first started in 2007, up until 2010, it was highly profitable. We grew every year, right? And we were growing like more than double every year. I was having a lot of fun. I'm like, holy cow, this is working out great, you know? Um, And then, you know, um, from 2010, like the last year in 2011, it started just breaking even. And the reason was... You know, uh, in the early years, SEO was super easy, right? I mean, you know, it was very, very easy to do, very easy to rank first on the first page for your keywords. Um, Google AdWords were, was, really, was really, really cheap. You could buy a lot of, like, you know, advertising very, and get very target audiences to your website very, very easily. And then as, you know, it started becoming more and more common, people started becoming very, you know, the market got really, really crowded and a lot of the keywords, a lot of the traffic was beginning to go to the big sites. People stopped using smaller sites. Today, if you see the vast majority of the audience, they go and use big sites. They go to Amazon, they go to eBay, they go to Netflix, they go to Facebook, etc., Google, etc. And the smaller players are completely out. You know, it's not easy for a small player to buy advertising and, you know, uh, remain sustainable. So that's kind of what happened. Like the first three years, acquiring traffic was very cheap for me. Um, last year, it got its the, the cost to acquire traffic started increasing. And when it became like so high that I was just breaking even, I knew, OK, all right, you know, this this business model, it's time to shut it down and go. Yeah. When did you actually start at Yahoo? Uh, in 2011. Two, I think oh. it was, yeah. Yeah, so it's the same year that you ended that, marketing director group. Correct. I think I started in September 2011. Okay, right. How did you actually get that job? Yeah, so I got through a, a connection. So... Uh, I was, you know, at that point, I was like, okay, you know what, my big, I've learned a lot about how to do conversion, how to, you know, price products, how to do lots of split testing, designing funnels, and so on. Where I have struggled in my startup was acquiring traffic, right? I wanted to, and and this, and at, at played at a very small scale, I was getting like, you know, tens of thousands of users to my websites. So I was in the market, I wanted to understand how do you work at global scale with millions of users 
Um, and so I was looking to uh, start to work at a big company which was operating globally and had millions of of visitors. So I started applying to these uh, local companies. I was in the in the right spot, right, Silicon Valley. And then a friend of mine connected me to somebody at Yahoo. Uh, it was one of their business units called Yahoo Small Business, um, which was the world's number one e-commerce platform in those days. Um, and uh, so I interviewed there. I told them, you know, what, all the stuff that I had learned. And they said that's exactly what they were looking for. So, yeah, that's how I ended up getting the job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and your position today um... Global product management lead at Yahoo Autos. What, what's kind of your position? What do you actually do? Yeah, so basically, uh, Yahoo, like like Google, etc., they all have multiple products, right? So the way we are organized is that each product um, is headed by a product manager, and sometimes there are even multiple product managers depending on the size of the product. So Yahoo Autos is a nine-figure business. Um, it runs. Uh, it operates in let me see uh, seven countries two in North America Canada Canada and US and five in EU uh, so it's the worst number one most visited car website nine figure uh, business what do I do there what what a typical product manager does so basically I am responsible for uh, product manager is the mini CEO of the products I'm pretty much responsible for everything that happens over there right um, so uh, I'm responsible for user experience uh, user metrics such as you know number of visitors uh, user experience metrics can include things like how much visits do we get per user every month things like that user experience metrics and I'm also responsible for business metrics so you know how much what's the profitability right how much uh, money are we making per user etc so in general from a business perspective I'm responsible for user experience and and um, and revenues and profits and um, from an operations perspective I have to uh, I work with a 27 person engineering team four person design team and then we have shared resources for legal, business development, advertising, sales, etc. Okay. So, mm -hmm. so with your first two companies moving over to Yahoo, what was what was the biggest takeaways you you brought with you from running smaller companies and getting into Yahoo? Yes, the biggest thing that I brought from smaller companies was just momentum, velocity. And massive user focus, right? Just not getting involved in bullshit politics. The answer is, answer lies, the users will tell you what the right answer is, what the right decision is. That's what I brought. Um, Yahoo, the way it was organized, my business unit, the way it was organized in those days, you know, very, you know, nothing against Yahoo, right? This is very common across all large companies. And the perspective that I brought was that, look, Here's what my experience in user testing, making great products for users has taught me. So here's what we're going to do. And uh, which was pretty refreshing. You know, a lot of people at Yahoo, when I joined there, I'm at Yahoo Small Business, they did not have that experience. They had been at Yahoo for so long, they did not understand a lot of modern things that lots of small companies were doing out there and using analytics, using split testing, etc. So um, they were almost like a monopoly for 10, 12 years, right? So they didn't have to learn and do all of those things. So I want to say momentum, velocity, uh, you know, and, uh, and user focus. Those are, the, those are the three things that I brought to Yahoo. Yeah. What was, what was the biggest takeaways you actually got from starting at Yahoo? Oh, my God. <laughs> the biggest, biggest takeaway is... Uh, let me see. Um, so the biggest takeaway for me, it might not be what you're expecting. It's uh, if you are going to do anything with huge impact, like really big, right? Something that impacts millions of users. You can't, you can't be this strong, independent, um, lone wolf kind of personality. Yeah. Anything big requires you to work with teams. And while you should, you should always have a very unique opinion, unique point of view, and be very assertive about it, right? But at the same time, you know, you have to think long term, you have to think millions of users, you have to think operating across seven countries, and willing to slow down a little bit 
so that for the greater good, for overall efficiency on a larger, larger basis. So learning to work with people, being patient, you know, understanding where it's good to be very, you know, fast and quick, make quick decisions, but where it's also important in the long term that the best decisions might be when you're working across multiple teams and so on. Yeah. So if if you were to start uh, Ion over again today, uh, what what would you do different with uh, with everything you've learned from your second company Yahoo and and uh, your consulting work? Uh, if I were to start Ion again, you know I would do exactly the same things. I would be just more be more aggressive and do them faster. Um, I feel like, you know, uh, when we are at very early stages of our careers, uh, when we are in our 20s, we are inefficient. You know, we're just, you know, learning our way in the world. We try a lot of things. We might be a little bit scared of some stuff and not take enough risks and so on. Uh, And personally, for me, it's like, my God, during that time, we only sold to four government agencies. That's nothing. And I was just being too cautious, too careful. Um, and now if I were to do that again, I would be so aggressive, uh, instead of taking, you know, five months to have our first version out, I would do it in two months. And instead of being that cautious, I would be very, very aggressive. I would show it to like 20 agencies instead of just four. So yeah, more speed, more, you know, better execution and more risk taking because in reality, it's not risk. (laughs) It's not as risky as you think. (laughs) Uh, and you, 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 um, no, actually, I'm, I'm going to wait with that because, um, no, let, let's do it. Let's do it. You, you, you told me about, um, you trained with, uh, some SEAL guys, the US spec ops. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> yeah, t- tell me about that. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So, um, I trained with them on November 22nd uh, last year and a date that I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to forget because <laughs> I, re- I really thought I'm going to die that day. <laughs> so it's like I was really terrified. <laughs> so, um, so basically I listened to Tim Ferriss a lot and, uh, you know, he's been interviewing, you know, General Stanley McChrystal, who is the, who was the commander of the entire joint spec ops, uh, you know, it was a JSOC commander yeah, in I'll, Afghanistan. I'll, I'll actually, sorry for interrupting, uh, Editesh. I'll just tell yeah. the audience very quickly because perhaps some haven't heard about Tim Ferriss. Uh, Tim Ferriss is this guy. He's written multiple New York best-selling books uh, about productivity, etc. cetera. Uh, and he has a podcast named The Tim Ferriss Show, which is, which is awesome. It's, it's extremely good. I'll listen to it. Uh, Ritesh obviously do. And he's just interviewing all the best people in the world in different areas and trying to get out the 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 details of how they do stuff and how they get as great as they do so uh, yeah and he, he's been interviewing a lot of uh, seal guys etc to to kind of um, see how they they get in the best shape as possible uh, focus etc so uh, yeah sorry sorry Ritesh, just go ahead yeah, absolutely. And, and, and for the audience, basically, Robert Shaw is the, is the Tim Ferriss of Norway. So. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically, Tim Ferriss has been interviewing a bunch of SEAL people. And I found out through another uh, virtual mentor of mine that there's a guy called Mark Devine, who is a former uh, Navy SEAL commander. And he actually trains civilians uh, with a, you know, to, and, and he trains them, you know, about physical fitness, mental toughness, resilience, how to quickly make decisions. And, you know, he tries to transform the SEAL skills into the civilian world. Yeah. So when I heard of that, I was like, holy cow, there's a, <laughs> I can actually go and train with like real SEALs. This is awesome. So, um, <laughs> so I was very stupid and foolish and I did not realize how tough that thing is. So I, I, and so that they have lots of training, their trainings which last like five days. So I decided to take a baby step. I said, I'll go for a day long training. It's only 13 hours. What's the worst that's going to happen, right? I'm just going to faint or something, right? (laughs) (laughs) Robert, it was was just brutal, man. It was just brutal. Like, I think think out of 33 people, 24 completed it. Um, 
And I was the I was the smallest guy there, the lightest small fellow there. Everybody, most of the people were like six feet and a half. They were weighing like 230, 250 pounds. And you've seen me. I'm I'm a small guy, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, like. <laughs> so, but you know, um, I got to train with these people. They're highly. They're just amazing. They're they're so inspirational. And we learned a lot of techniques like segmenting, front side focus, uh, you know, how to inspire your team, how to make sure that, you know, you, you communicate with them so that you can rely on them and that they always have your back. Um, how do you transfer a sense of ownership of the business to your team, right? Um, and, then, and then, you know, how do you not give up uh, in, in when you're facing extreme adversity, when all odds are against you? Right. So, I mean, CEOs, for example, like, you know, these guys, they get dropped behind enemy lines. They're like, you know, 40 miles away from their chopper uh, with no support. Your, your government can't even admit that you are there if anything goes wrong. And they're carrying like, you know, 60 pounds of, you know, equipment on them. And they, they climb all these mountains day, night, day, night. And they do that for like five, seven days at a time. Um, and, you know, stuff goes wrong. They break their bones. They get injured. And most of the times they end up completing their missions and getting out very, you know, they have a very, very good record of finishing their missions and they have a very small record of self, of personal casualties. So, um, so I would say that, you know, without going into too much detail of, you know, how important torture it was, uh, it was, it was, it was, it's hard. But it was highly transformative. And I think it's a very efficient training because within one day, you, you very quickly, your brain goes, wow, you know, and that does not happen very often with trainings. I mean, you and I, we have both attended lots of trainings, lots of programs. How many of them are really good? You tell me. How many of them are really? Are really good. <laughs> the from what I've learned so far, different courses have good aspects and bad aspects. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so I've, I've, I don't think I've come across a course that's, you know, highly, um, efficient or what I should say all the way through. Uh, but if you take bit different bits of different courses and, you know, listening to podcasts as well, it's like, I, I don't listen to, I don't listen to, um, uh, all the time to a special episode about what I want to learn. I listen to all the other episodes about different things from different people in different markets. And that's where you learn the stuff you bring into the, into the new one. So yeah, you have to pick up stuff from all around. So yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, so uh, I exactly, right? I mean, my personal experience is that, you know, lots of these coaches training, they over-promise and under-deliver, while this one was like so transformative, so efficient, right? In one day, I learned like, you know, I had a completely different way of seeing adversity around me. And then this confidence that you get that, oh my God, like anything that comes and hits you, like, that's nothing. I did that. I survived that. It's just peanuts. You know, and you very quickly evaluate what's going on around you. You don't get stressed. You evaluate options and you again continue the march forward. You hit it again with momentum, you know. So I would say that, you know, for if you're, you know, for all your entrepreneur audiences, um, I highly recommend if you ever get a chance, like, you know, to come here to U.S. and train with those seals in San Diego, just take it. It's one day. You need to be in good physical shape, of course, for it. Um, but it's uh, it's not that expensive, and the things that you will learn about um, you know about focus, about not getting distracted, about keeping your eye on the ball, about making sure you continue making progress no matter how high the adversity is, um, those those lessons can be very very invaluable in the entrepreneurship journey. Yeah, it's it's been a month or so since you since you participated. Um, do you have a special moment you remember now where where you did something differently than you would do before uh, because of that course? Hundred percent. So let me let me see if I can very quickly teach your audience a concept I learned there. 
maybe like a, uh, in maybe like a minute or so. So there's this thing that they use. It's called segmenting. Okay, um, and what happens to many of us is that when we are looking at our entrepreneurship goals, we all get overwhelmed. We think that, oh my God, there's this product. I have to create the product, then I have to create a website for it, then I have to build a list, and then, oh my God, what am I going to write to this email list every day? How do how do I get content for that? What blogs am I going to write? Okay, and then you know. What's the profitability? Profitability on it is going to be like. What if I don't get enough people on my website? And we all get overwhelmed, right, um, with our entrepreneurship projects. So the way seals use a technique, it's called segmenting. And what they say is that, look, I'm going to trust in the plan I made. And right now, what what is it in front of me? What's the small step, small progress can I can do? So during the seal training, what happens is that the you know they get people like ex-Olympic athletes and so on. And sometimes they're not able to complete the training. And the reason is that, you know, the biggest, the toughest people, a lot of times they're not able to finish the training is that they get overwhelmed. They're like, oh God, I'm feeling like dying right now. How can I survive five more days of this? Um, I have not slept. My legs are hurting. I think I've broken a bone in my chest and the water's freezing. How am I going to survive, right? And if we start thinking that way, uh, your brain is just going to admit defeat. It's going to try to protect you because it's perceiving harm, right? So what they do, they use this technique called segmenting. They say, all I got to do is survive the next five minutes. You know, I have, I'm carrying 60 pounds, my legs are cramping, and, you know, all I have to do is survive next five minutes. All I have to do is survive till lunchtime. All I got to do is that they have tied my hands behind my back and I'm in this freezing water and I can't breathe, I can't swim. All I have to do is hold my breath for 20 seconds. So it's this technique of segmenting and it, keep, and it prevents you from giving up right when you think that it's too much, you know. And, um, and, and I use it all the time, like when I'm feeling exhausted in the middle of the day and I'm like, I'm overwhelmed with all this stuff and I say, and I look at my calendar and I say, you know, I scheduled this for 30 minutes. All I have to do is survive the next 30 minutes. And I'm going to use another technique with segmenting. It's called front sight focus. So basically, it's the front sight of your weapon. I'm going to focus just on that for the next 30 minutes. That's all. I'm not going to think of anything else. Not going to think of my girlfriend. Not going to think of email list. Not going to think of the tech. Not going to think of the website. 30 seconds segmenting front sight focus. That's it. So that's, um, does that answer your question? One technique that I can, that I use pretty much almost daily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you have a time when you remember you had a hard time doing it, but then you managed to correct yourself or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is actually, yeah, again, I think, I think I have an example which might work here. So, so I am, uh, you know, I, I think we touched upon this a little bit in the beginning, I'm going through a divorce right now. So I was married for 15 years and, you know, the French girl I met and I'm going through a divorce right now. And uh, so what would happen, what I was noticing uh, during the year was that every time we would have to go to the court for, you know, for splitting our financial assets, it's a, it's a very acrimonious divorce, okay? And it would stress the hell out of me. I would be like, oh God, so much paperwork. It's going to be so stressful. Lawyers are involved and this and that. And I would lose almost one whole week's productivity because of that, right? Because I'm thinking about before the day I'm supposed to go in the court, the day of the court is lost. And then when I come back, I'm like stressed out and tired um, and I would not get any work done. And then, you know, once I attended this training and I came back and what the, what I noticed, and and that's that's huge, right? I mean, Robert, you can't afford to lose entire week's productivity every time something external comes and disturbs you, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, so after this training, when I came back, what I noticed was that as the date was approaching, I started noticing the same thing. I'm beginning to get stressed. And then I would start doing this breathing exercises that they teach you in SEAL and say, focus, focus, focus on the enemy. What's in front of you? What's your mission? You can't, you can't, you know, control all the other variables, all everything else that's going on around you. 
focus on what's in front of you, segment it. What can you do in the next 30 minutes? What can you do in the next hour? What can you finish today? You know, what's under your control? Small bite, right? Um, and I started doing that and I said, okay, I'm feeling bad, but I'm going to promise I'm going to commit to working for this 30 minutes on this small thing. I would do that. And then I would start doing the next one. Then I would start doing the next one. And what I realized was that not only this court appearance did not ruin my whole week the way it was ruining it before, I got a lot of stuff done. And the day of the actual court appearance for my divorce, I was smiling. I was not at all feeling stressed, you know. And so I think that was like a huge turning point for me because I want to say a big source of stress and issues for me last year has been my divorce. Um, and I had allowed it to start impacting my focus and my productivity on my entrepreneurship side. So it, that really helped. Yeah. So if... No, actually, I want to hear about... I want to hear about you flying, Ritesh. <laughs> how how was it to get in front of the plane and start flying it yourself? Oh, dude, it's it's the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, it's amazing. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know what to tell you, man. It's uh, you know it's been it's been a lifelong dream. I was you know growing up in India, always wanted to be a pilot, uh, loved airplanes. So, but in India, it was just a dream, right? It's uh, it's not easy to do that here. So, you know, when I first sold my company in France and moved to US, uh, it it was the first time I actually had the time and money to do something about my dream. So yeah, I, I I joined you know a local flying school and then just kept going. Got my commercial pilot license, then I got my instrument license, and I got my multi-engine commercial pilot license. Then I became a flight instructor. It's um, it's mostly been a blast. So the the one thing I'll tell you is that you remember I told you how I was terrified for my life during the SEAL training. So the second, that was the second time. The first time I've been terrified for my life was <laughs> was when I crashed my plane. So I don't know if oh. I told you. I've actually, I've actually crashed my plane once. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> what? Tell me about it. So, um, so basically, I I took a small plane and flew over the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, where we there's a lot of skiing, um, and I flew it over the Rockies in the night. And I got caught in a snowstorm. So, so my whole plane got covered up with snow and ice. And um, all of my instruments, everything just like stopped working. Wow. So uh, I, I pretty much like get crashed in a snowstorm in the night in the Rockies. And I had a, my, my three-year-old son was with me at that time. <laughs> wow. That was not fun. <laughs> so what was your, what was your, how did your thoughts go when, when that happened? Um, boy, my first thought was, shit, my wife's going to kill me. (laughs) That was my first thought. (laughs) And then like, you know, um, I had passed out when I crashed. I, I, I woke up and I'm like, I'm starting to look for my son. And I fortunately found him and he was perfectly fine. Thank God. Like nothing happened to him. Thank God. So, and then I'm like, oh, God, you know, my wife is going to kill me for putting my son in danger. And then um, I was kind of like, you know, I used to be very arrogant, very optimistic in those days. Like, you know, how teenagers are, they think they're invincible. So I was like, oh, shit, I'm alive. So everything seems to be cool, not realizing that I I might survive the crash, but I might die of hypothermia because it was snowing and I had no coat, no jacket, nothing, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. So, so does Neil uh, actually remember the crash? Yeah, Neil remembers it very well. Uh, he remembers it. He's got uh, he's got a very small mark on his left shoulder where the seat belt was. So you know, um, he, so he's got a permanent uh, souvenir of the crash as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, he remembers it. But he. I'm very lucky that he never got scared of airplanes. Like once, you know, I recovered from my injuries, 
because um, I, I was severely injured uh, in that crash. But once I recovered from the injuries, I went, I went back to flying planes, and he has flown with me lots of times since then. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, that was a rough one. Like, that one, I really broke bones. I broke, like, there's a bone in my neck, which was broken, in my back, in my leg. Wow. <laughs> if I say success, who's the first person you think about and uh, why? Or successful? Uh, who, okay, successful, who and why? Oh, boy. You know, I think um, I think I think of Tucker Max as a very successful person. I think of Tim Ferriss as partly successful, um, and there are a couple of other people whom I think are very very successful. Who just live, who are like not public personalities, but just live very simple, very satisfied lives. And so, so let me tell you the why part. And um, why I think uh, Tucker Max, for example, do, do you know Tucker, who Tucker Max is, Robert? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Okay, so so Tucker Max is this guy who was who became very infamous in U.S. Because he was a big womanizer. His basically goal in life was to, you know, just sleep with as many women as possible. And he made this, you know, very like teenage kind of movies and so on. And today he is happily married, settled down with a kid. He is not like, you know, super mega bazillionaire or something. But. Hey, Robert. Yeah, sorry. I searched for, for Tucker Max and I managed to. Really break off the call. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I was saying, I think I think of Tucker Max as somebody very successful because I feel like he's found happiness. And here's what I mean when I say he's found happiness. He's happily married. He's got a child now. He's not super gazillionaire, billionaire, but he has enough that he he's never starving. He's able to travel. He's able to indulge in his hobbies. And and he he's happy in his relationships. He's physically fit. He has found a meaning to his life, and um, and he's able to grow himself. He keeps on learning new things, and he's able to contribute back to the society and take care of people who are important to him. So that's that. In a nutshell, is kind of my definition of success: that you are able to grow yourself. You are not starving that you're not stressed out by money, you are happy in your relationships, and you're able to contribute to people around you. Yeah. Now, that's great. So, um, the last year, um, what's the best purchase you've done for, uh, for 150 bucks or less? Oh, my Kindle e-reader, for sure. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, I love, love, love my Kindle e-reader. I used to be a big fan of physical books. I was old school and I would think that, ah, you know, it's better retention if I read it, you know, physical books. And then like at some point I decided to give Kindle a try because one of my 2015 goals was to read more, just like read a lot more books. And what I discovered was that I'm just reading a lot more. My reading speed is much more and I retain a lot more. I'm able to highlight stuff in my in my Kindle e-reader and then I'm able to export them to Google Doc. So I'm able to create like summaries of the book. So it has, it's an extremely important, valuable purchase to me. Like I have it with me all the time. Uh, I read four times as many books as before and I'm able to like, you know, keep notes and summaries of the books. So I'm able to internalize and take action on those books much, much more. Yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely absolutely have to agree on that. Um, I'm using an iPad. I don't have a Kindle, uh, but the possibility of highlighting stuff, going through your notes afterwards, highlighting pages, uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. But I, if there's a special book that's really beneficial, uh, I also buy it afterwards in paperback and I put it in my bookshelf. Uh, 
not to read it, but just to kind of see it and to be reminded of whatever I learned from it. So usually I actually purchase both books, which uh, isn't good for the wallet, but it's good for the head, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Hello? Hello, yeah. Yeah, no, I I love that you, you keep it around for inspiration. I think it's so important to have, you know, things that inspire you around your workspace. So just having, you know, books from people you like or just, just you know, the title of the book being visible to you, you know, yeah. it's uh, very inspirational, even if you don't use the book per se and you're just reading on Kindle. Yeah, absolutely. No, I feel all the time yeah. I can see the books in my bookshelf and I remember what I what I learned in them. Uh, yeah. So and, you know, you know, Robert, so I would I would challenge you to spend a hundred bucks and get the Kindle e-reader. Yeah. And experiment one month reading on it versus your iPad. My feeling, my prediction is that you're going to enjoy more, you're going to read faster, and you will feel less fatigued, less tired while reading on the Kindle. It's extremely light and it's monochrome, so it tires your eyes out much less. Okay. Uh, and uh, I'm told that there are some, there's some signs behind you know, the LCD screen of the iPad being not good for the eyes. Versus the the you know very simple monochrome screen of Kindle Reader, it just helps you remember much more. So I will challenge you to do that hundred dollar experiment sometime, you know, and just try it for a month and see see what you feel about it. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely get it. I tried it a couple of years ago and it actually amazed me because it actually looked like a book. It looks like a paper. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. weird. It's a screen, but it looks like paper with with text on it. It's amazing, uh, but it's still backlit, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what's your favorite book there? Oh man, that is a tough one. <laughs> that is a seriously tough one. I think you know the the. The favorite book itself is Charisma Myth. It's by Olivia Fox Caban. And uh, mind, mind-blowing book. It just simplified, clarified so much for me about, you know, how I should look at my life, how I should define my goals, um, and how to accomplish them. Um, yeah, Charisma Myth, absolutely fantastic. Nice. So, you know, the last question here before uh, before we round off. You've traveled so much. You, you've, you've lived all over the world. You've worked all the place, all over the world. And, um, yeah, you've seen so many cultures and you've, you've gained so much experience from so much. What would kind of... What would you your advice be to be to the people listening now um, from what you've gained across all your all the years? Uh, so the one thing that comes to mind, Robert, is that people across cultures they they have more similarities than differences. Yeah, you know that's that's number one thing that we're all looking for exactly the same thing, no matter where we are living. We're all looking for, you know, the perfect life partner, right, to hang out with, you know. We're all looking for financial security, and then we're all looking for significance that that others acknowledge us how important we are. And ultimately, we're all also looking for ways to contribute to people around us, around us. believe it or not, all of us have that those same needs, the you know, the ability to contribute to others, to find that partner, to find uh, you know, financial stability, uh, etc. So that is one thing. And if we keep that in mind when we are working with people who don't look like us, who are different from us, you know, our natural instinct and fear of people who are not similar to us is, 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 is fear, right? Oh my God, he, he does not look like me or he's from another country. And so, you know, uh, can I trust that person and so on? And I feel like what I have seen uh, and experienced in all of my years living and working in like more than a dozen countries is that we all have same fundamental needs. And if you recognize that, and if we help, the other person meet those needs. If you if you find a way to you know to 
if you find a way to help other person get financial security, to help him feel important, to help him contribute to the world, or to help him find, you know, friendship or a life partner, then you are meeting that other person's core needs and you will all be best friends forever. So that's, that's my learning. We all have same needs. And if you look to help other person meet that need, it works out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do to others what you want to you <laughs> actually I don't know the I don't know the the bible uh, sentence in in English <laughs> you know do to others what you want them to do to you or yeah whatever you know exactly <laughs> exactly my my first goal whenever I'm going to a new country or place I don't know is that come on man what's fun out here let's go have some fun and then it goes downhill from there it's all smooth <laughs> uh, Ritesh this has been great um, thanks a lot for for joining this call all the way from India and I uh, hope you have a good time there with your family and uh, and um, take back some memories with you to Silicon Valley before you start working again. Robert, it's my pleasure, man. And thanks so much for being flexible and working through, you know, Skype, internet and phone and stuff. And dude, I hope I'll be seeing you in Cancun this year in summer. Yeah, absolutely. If it's going to be in Cancun this year, but um, br bring your plane. I want to go for a ride. <laughs> 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 Might not be safe in Mexico, <laughs> but, but we can we can certainly organize something. I'm pretty sure. I think I saw some private planes that you could rent out there. You know, oh, they, awesome. and they could take us out. So, um, well, I have I have lots of ambitions for this trip, like coming a week early and doing some kite surfing and lots of fun. So, oh, yeah, that will be if awesome. you're interested, I'll definitely let you know. So that was Ritesh Lal. Thanks again, man, for the interview. That was in India, and he should be back in Silicon Valley at the moment. So sorry to you guys at home for the sound quality. And um, if there's anything you didn't hear, I'm making an article that I'm putting out uh, on the uh, on the website. It's going to be in Norwegian, but at the bottom you will find all the links to to the things we talked about, etc. Uh, that's at incubatoren.no. 12. And for the English guys, you probably didn't understand the URL. I just said, if you just click the album cover in uh, your podcast app, you'll find the link uh, there. Thanks to you guys for listening. And now I'm actually going to switch back to Norwegian uh, for my Norwegian listeners. So thanks to you guys. Yes, hi igjen, folkens. Jeg kan fortsatt norsk. Jeg la ut en video på Facebook-gruppa forrige uke, hvor jeg spurte dere om deres favorittpodkaster. Og det er fordi jeg skal lage en helt dedikert episode til podkaster. De podkastene jeg liker, de podkastene som har hjulpet mig, men jeg vil også gjerne ha med deres forslag. Da sa jeg at jeg skulle lage denne episoden denne uka, men jeg tror jeg skal vente litt til før jeg vil gjerne høre vad deras favoriter är. Så gå på Facebookgruppen. Du kommer rätt in, visst du bara skriver in inkubatoren.no/facebook. Då kommer du rätt in på gruppen och gärna på den episoden här lägg en kommentar på deras favoritpodcaster och gärna också varför det liker akkurat dig. Så blir det då alltså en egen episode dedikerad till podcaster snart. I nästa episode, då är vi så klart tillbaka igen på norsk. Da har jeg med mig en fyr som har gjort det utrolig bra med en nettavis, og allerede på ett år så har han fått de større nettavisene til å skjelve i boksene. Da har jeg med mig Gard Mikalsen fra medier24.com. Musikk